the Seattle Opera Podcast. Hey, John. Hey, Deja. You're in my podcast right now. No, you're in mine. OMG, I could never host the Seattle Opera Podcast. I know even less about opera than I do about the rest of classical music. And I could never host Classical Classroom because I'm entirely too knowledgeable. Nobody would ever buy it. That's true. John, I think it's time we told people what's going on here. Okay, you're right. You guys, we're having a crossover episode. Jonathan Dean here is the dramaturg for the Seattle Opera. He's the guy who makes the super titles and speaks a million languages and he also hosts the seattle opera podcast which is a super entertaining podcast about all things opera and not just in seattle and daisha is the host of classical classroom podcast a show where because she's new to classical music she invites experts to come in and teach her all about the music Right, and so, as it happens, composer Mason Bates came to Seattle recently because the Seattle Opera is performing his opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs, uh, which, by the way, just won a Grammy for Best Opera Recording, like, last week. That's right, it was in Snow Day here in Seattle, but down in Los Angeles at the Grammys, they were all celebrating The Revolution of Steve Jobs. It's an amazing recording. But we thought this was the perfect opportunity for our two podcasts to join forces and become Voltron. <laughs> John, do you actually know what Voltron is, or are you just saying that because I wrote it in the script? Wasn't he one of the super friends? Yeah, totally. That's exactly who Voltron <laughs> was. Anyway, whether you are a Classical Classroom listener or a Seattle Opera Podcast listener, you're about to hear my conversation with Mason Bates, and you're going to learn why on earth one would want to tell the story of a tech guru with this very old medium of opera. Spoiler alert, it's because opera is the best. If you want to find out why, you should check out Seattle Opera Podcast. It's on iTunes and all of those other podcast places. And it's a really good podcast. Oh, go on. You're just saying that because you co-produce it. I mean, a little bit. But that said, if you want to know more about all things classical music, you should come and check out the Classical Classroom Podcast. Agreed. Cool. So... What do you say? Should we get on with the interview now? I was enjoying the rambling. The, what's this? No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call it, man. I think we should get on with the interview. Okay, fine. Okay, you have to say the thing. Say the thing. Oh, right. And now a word from Classical Classroom's sponsor. <laughs> this episode of Classical Classroom is sponsored by Maestro Classics, creators of the award-winning stories and music series for children and families featuring the London Philharmonic Orchestra. Choose from over a dozen recordings, including Juanita the Spanish Lobster, one of the funniest works ever written for orchestra. You'll learn about flamenco music, bel canto opera, and recitative, which is a word that I learned how to say on this very podcast. Available at maestroclassics.com, Amazon, and iTunes. And now, on with the show, about the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special crossover edition of Classical Classroom slash the Seattle Opera Podcast. I'm Daisha Clay, usually host of the Classical Classroom Podcast, and I'm excited to have Grammy-nominated composer and DJ Mason Bates in the studio today. He's in town because the Seattle Opera is about to perform his opera, The Revolution of Steve Jobs. The world premiere of this opera took place in Santa Fe, and it was actually so popular that they added an extra performance. Today, we're going to focus on something in the opera that's a little bit heady, so 
prepare yourselves, people. It's called intersectionality, uh, but we'll get that get to that in a minute. Mason Bates, welcome to the Classical Classroom and Seattle Opera Podcast. It's so great to be here, just popping out of rehearsals right now and coming in here. It's super exciting. I mean, I've certainly enjoyed hearing your podcast, and it's an honor to be on it. You just said you were telling me before we started talking that you um, you actually are in Seattle a fair amount because your wife is from here. But th- this is only the second city to actually have a performance of this opera. Is that right? This is actually the third city. Oh. Um, it happened as a premiere in Santa Fe, then Indiana University in Bloomington did it. What's really exciting about this run is that it's the first time the piece is happening in a real tech town. It feels a little mm. bit like, you know, the the mothership is coming into to base camp. And, you know, Seattle has a resonance with this topic that, as amazing as it was in Santa Fe or Bloomington, that just hasn't happened yet. And additionally, the piece has undergone some revisions that are going to be really exciting to see for the first time here. Yeah, I heard a little bit of something about that. Can you tell us, before we get started, what the opera is all about, just a brief synopsis for those who don't know. The opera is about the life of Steve Jobs, and it is through the perspective of a man who changed the way we communicate, yet had so many challenges in dealing with people and communicating with people in his lives mm-hmm. and um, in, his, in his life. The, the, I'd say the fundamental question of the opera is how can you take all of human communication and put it on these sleek, beautiful devices when people are so messy, people are so complicated, Yeah, you know? And you saw in Jobs' life that he was constantly trying to kind of hide the messy wires, you know? Mm-hmm. He had a daughter that he didn't acknowledge for many, many years. He had pancreatic cancer. He had a lot of things he couldn't control that he mm-hmm. tried to control. And so this impulse towards beautiful design, you know, beautiful sleek surfaces, that we know of as, as the iPhone or the iPod or all Macintosh um, in general, um, that can be seen as a kind of a aesthetic mm-hmm. impulse, but can also be seen as a kind of control impulse. Mm-hmm. And that's the stuff of opera. Yeah, that's, and I, you know, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about. Because um, I mentioned that I, I, that I wanted to focus on intersectionality. And for listeners out there who are wondering what the hell intersectionality is, it's just the idea that social categories and categories of things don't exist in a vacuum, that they intersect and they affect each other. But I think that this applies to things beyond that in art and in music, obviously in technology. And, and yeah, the first thing is that obviously we're talking about very modern technology and you're using this very old art form to to talk about that and what made you think hey this seems like a great topic for for an opera i it's not something that immediately jumps to mind for a lot of people i i love that you say that because it's one of the reasons i was drawn to the to the subject to begin with i believe that the life of Steve Jobs is the stuff of opera. And it always seemed that way to me. Um, here's a man who um, changed communication, and, and therefore communication as a theme is something that opera can explore. Everybody has different kinds of internal music that the orchestra might be playing when they're on stage, or external music when they're singing, and you can really conjure up this idea of different people communicating, intersecting. Um, yet, it is an old medium, and it, there is something kind of surprising about 
taking Steve Jobs as as a subject. I love that that kind of mix of surprise and to me inevitability. For me, what seems so inevitable about Steve Jobs being a subject for an opera, it's got his story's got love, it's got death, it's got the artist. I mean, it's, you know, La Boheme, you know, mm-hmm. Tales of Offman, you know, Britain's Death in Venice. We have all kinds of stories of creative individuals. Living in the Bay Area, um, as many people here in Seattle will understand, we're surrounded by this new kind of creative creature, which is the technologist. And I think of all people that work in that space as kind of creatives in some way. And um, Jobs in particular lived his life at the intersection of art and technology. Mm. And so I felt like opera would be the perfect medium. And one of the other reasons is that it's not representational. You know, when you have something in a movie, it ultimately is a little bit seductive because you think this is the way it really was. Well, opera, there's no question. People Mm -hmm. don't go around singing. And you can deal with some of those questions and challenges of his life in a poetic way that I think can get closer to the essence. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, I mean, he's such a complicated guy. And I think, too, you know, as I was uh, sort of reading up about the opera and getting to know a little bit more about it, one of the other things that I saw intersecting, I think this is a big thing in opera, is is spirituality comes up a lot. And so there's this this intersection of spirituality and technology in opera. Uh, Steve Jobs was a Buddhist, a Zen Buddhist, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And talk to me about how spirituality comes up in the opera, for one, but then how it kind of intersected with his technological life. How did those two things coexist in the same person? Yeah, isn't that fascinating that Eastern mysticism has impacted these products? How does that work? How does that make any sense? Well, you know, when he was at Reed College in Oregon, like, ages ago, he studied calligraphy. He loved the lines of ancient calligraphy, Eastern calligraphy. And um, he ultimately started practicing Zen Buddhism with his spiritual mentor, this fellow named Kobun, who is Mm -hmm. a big part in this opera. The clean lines of um, calligraphy, the kind of pared down aesthetic, you absolutely see it in Jobs' approach to devices. I mean, you know, he used to have one button. They don't even have a button anymore. That's mm-hmm. how clean and simple they are. And so I think with Jobs, it's the idea of taking, how does it impact his, his technology and his devices? It's the idea of taking away the the interface and kind of making these machines like something we play, like mm-hmm. an instrument. And I think that's a very beautiful, almost Zen kind of an idea. Mm-hmm. And um, it's weird. It's weird to think about Zen Buddhism impacting some kind of piece of technology, but it absolutely did, and it's such a fundamental West Coast kind of intuition revelation. And and the fact that part of that revelation came here between you know Seattle and San Francisco on an apple orchard up in Reed College, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, Macintosh, Apple. Uh, you know, he he. There's a scene in the opera that's based on reality where he was in an apple orchard um, on LSD, you know, with Cresson. Yeah. I was, so obviously I haven't seen the opera yet, but I was able to read a little bit and see a few videos online. One of the things that I was reading about is that um, he's, he's tripping on LSD and he's imagining 
Bach shows up basically like the music of Bach shows up there's there's like a quartet playing right and that was really interesting what did that actually was did he ever talk about imagining classical music or Bach of, or is that something that you just put in there well was that your interpretation L- L- librettist Mark Campbell was really careful about this is an opera this is a kind of poetic response but he really wanted it to be based on real life, real events, the real Steve Jobs. And he absolutely researched a trip that that Jobs had where he was imagining things like playing in a field. And Mark chose the composer of Bach as the thing he was hearing. That's such a perfect composer. I mean, Bach is such a great example of creative technology. I mean, the well-tempered clavier is a response to a tuning system being developed. Really? Yeah. Yeah, the well-tempered clavier is Bach basically saying, we can now write in all keys. In the old days, you know, you would have a beautiful A major, but if you modulated to, say, F sharp major, it would sound all tweaky because slight differences in the tuning system meant that certain keys had a certain richness and others sounded like, you know, the equivalent of, of B.O. You know, they were just <laughs> And um, so Bach, and you can even hear it in Bach's compositions, you know, you think of the famous prelude in C major. There's a kind of mechanical quality to Bach's music mm. that miraculously sort of enters the soul. And I think that's yeah. so appropriate that the Voyager spacecraft from the 70s, um, when when they put certain things on the spacecraft, if it ever encountered alien life, one of them were the Bach preludes and fugues, because it's, it's this perfect middle ground between kind of mechanical, technological, and and the soul and art. I'm, I'm more of a novice when it comes to opera than I am with uh, classical music, so I always forget that the composer and the librettist are doing two different things, and that maybe did you guys work together? Absolutely. That's actually yes. okay. So you 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 didn't like compose music and then he took it and then fit it in the story. Yeah, but no, you worked together. We we absolutely worked together. We had many almost like Jobsian walks you know Steve Jobs used to walk all over Cupertino and think yeah. about things with different people he was working with we walked all over San Francisco and made some pretty early decisions we wanted it to be nonlinear you know almost like a kind of shattered piece like the Christmas carol or something where a figure in this case Coboon is showing him different parts of his life we wanted to have a big role for Loreen um, mm. as the important grounding figure Loreen, sorry yeah, to interrupt Lorene you, but Job. she was she was his his wife. Yes. and his was he married to Chrisanne? He wasn't or, married to Chrisanne, but she was his his partner before. Lorene. Yeah, okay. and and they had they had a child, Lisa. Right. But um, so Mark then went away and started writing the libretto after we had like 
you know, kind of gotten a, a sort of a structure to it. And a lot of back and forth would happen. You know, he would send something and I'd say, this is great. I would like catchier language here, uh, more vivid language. Every aria should have almost like a sentence that, or even a, a phrase that encapsulates it, one device, something we play, that kind of thing. And then I write the music, and then, you know, sometimes Mark would say, you know, I think you're missing the, the beat here dramatically. So it really was a, a collaboration, and, and um, you know, anybody that's listening that has ever had to work with people probably knows that there is sometimes what you call productive friction. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, I would say things like, well, we've got these panels that move all around the stage that can form different shapes. What if after he gets fired and he's at his worst state, he gets, like, boxed in by these panels and he's like surrounded like in a cage and Mark would say that is so cheesy <laughs> that is so cheesy um, and I'd be like well but we you know can we do something like that and Mark would be like well let me think about it and so then he would come back with something yeah, that would be like well maybe you know, we can't cage him in because of this and the other but we can do this and so those kinds of productive arguments mm-hmm. I think are or what makes a collaborative art form, hopefully, an experience that's not just one person's idea, but a real meeting of the minds. That's interesting, especially when talking about Steve Jobs, who he's sort of this standalone figure, even though he was, uh, I know he had this this relationship before that, you know, very contentious relationship that that launched two companies and but he wasn't a collaborator he wasn't known right as a collaborator. right he was like he was sort of this very charismatic person who somehow or at least charismatic in some way he led people he he like convinced them to do certain things and and he was you know he was he was a sort of standalone figure that's how i think of him yeah well, you know yeah. what's what's interesting is that when he died there are all kinds of articles that came out you know, inventor of the iPhone. And um, I remember talking to my father-in-law here, Peter Seitel, who runs a computer systems company and knows something about technology. And he was like, Steve Jobs didn't invent the iPhone. There's no one person that invented any of this. So he was absolutely a collaborative person. But he ran such a, you know, grueling kind of gulag and often was the one pitching it on the stage mm-hmm. that we we think of it as kind of his brainchild. But, you know, Woz was, you know, Steve Wozniak was one and a half Apple. I mean, there's mm-hmm. a scene in this opera of them in the garage where they kind of hack into the phone, the phone service through some kind of old blue blue box of a device and they call the Vatican as a joke. You know, there's real humor in that, but it it goes to show that these guys are out to possibly disrupt major industries, mm-hmm. and um, you know, ultimately, that relationship fries in scene twelve mm-hmm. when Steve Jobs basically tells Waz, you know. This is my company, mm-hmm. and um, I. So I, I think essentially he was a great leader in the way that he was able to convince people to do things at all costs. He was a pretty, you know, renownedly poor manager of people. You know, he would grind them to a pulp. But his charisma is not to be underestimated, and 
what's fascinating to me as a composer is that one person is both protagonist and antagonist. He's both the positive charge and the negative mm, charge. Yeah. And that's why his wife, Loreen, acting as the ground between uh-huh. those two is so key to this story. How did you go about portraying that in music? What, what, yeah, how? I mean, and you have a lot, by the way, people who are not familiar with Mason Bates' music, you employ a lot of electronics in your own music. In fact, you are a DJ in addition to being a composer. So you're really familiar with that world when it, when it comes to bringing it into music. How did you, how'd you do it? Well, I'm very much a composer and not a technologist, even mm. though it makes a big part of my sound world. But that, that little piece right there is the, is with the revelation for me. So much music history has some kind of technological innovation that just doesn't go anywhere. I mean, you can mm. think of the theremin in the old days. You can think of any, you know, the guitar, any number of instruments that came and went. <laughs> For me, integrating electronics into the symphonic sound world was about remembering that this is the orchestra's show, mm-hmm. or in the case of the opera, this is the opera show, and that the electronic component really comes out of the orchestra almost as like an extension of the percussion section. And um, if you can find a way to do that, then suddenly you can go anywhere. I mean, I have a piece called The B-Sides that has a... NASA spacewalk set to music, the first mm. American spacewalk. I have a piece called Alternative Energy that has a particle accelerator from Fermilab that boots up in the second movement. This piece uses a lot of actual sounds recorded from Apple gear, you know, early Apple Mm. gear. So, you know, the opera opens with key clicks of a Mac Plus and little hard drive spinnings of, uh, I think it's like an Apple II or something. It's important for me as a composer to have a kind of authenticity to that sound world because that's what gives it a kind of texture, you know. And yeah, is it is a key click of a Mac Plus really different from, from a PC or something? Well, maybe, maybe not. But what's fascinating to me is that here you have a subject who is so integral to our lives that the sounds of his creations actually make up the fabric of the piece and in fact in the pit there's there's you know a mac laptop playing um you can do it on a pc as well just letting you know but um <laughs> th- that's that's interesting to me as a composer that sound brings content mm-hmm. and you know no matter how amazing the sound of a fiddle or a flute is um it doesn't bring kind of content in the way that a piece of electronic recording does mm-hmm. so if you can handle it very carefully suddenly you can have all manner of sounds and spaces brought into your music without having any words. Yeah. 
That's interesting because I think that's actually something that makes Apple products different is the way that you interact with them, the way that you touch them, the, the sounds that they make, the subtleties of all of that. So that's that's cool. One of the the things that we haven't touched on yet is the fact that Steve Jobs dies in this opera. And just the the topic of mortality is brought up a lot. And how did you how did you approach that as a composer? Why first do we see the death of Kobun? Is that how to pronounce it? Right. Who's his spiritual advisor? And there's this whole weird thing about how Steve Jobs finally goes, "Oh, I'm dead now." That's you know. Yeah. It's so talk to me about that. Well, opera is love and death. I mean, it deals with big topics, mm-hmm. and it will never be a, t- a medium that is going to be about a product. Yeah. If someone says, hey, my opera's about, say, the hydrogen bomb, yeah, really? It's probably about the guy who made the bomb, um, you know, the John Adams opera, Dr. Atomic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all great opera really needs to be about people, and it really could be Steve Jones as opposed to Steve Jobs. We need to relate to this person and understand what motivates this person. So death is one of the uncontrollable things about life. And it's one of the things that you can't really put a box around, a box of coal wood, as Jobs did around one of his Apple IIs or something. A nice, beautiful interface. So he tried to control his cancer, you know, his pancreatic cancer with diets, you know, like he was eating carrots. And, you know, eventually, um, I mean, it it was known that Lorene kind of said, this is it, you know, you, you're never going to get this beat with carrots. You know, you, it's called chemotherapy and you need to do it. And I find that that element of humanity so interesting. Here's a guy that not only just changed five or six industries, but changed the way we communicate. Mm-hmm. But he cannot, he cannot beat death. And that piece of it, I think, is what takes the opera from a story about creative technology mm-hmm. and elevates it to a more universal thematic, which is what we need and that's what we go to the opera house for. You know, you yeah. you want to find out about what it means to be human. And um, he does die at the end, but he's been maybe dead the whole time. It really is a kind, mm. it's kind of a form a little bit like a Christmas carol where he's kind of going through his life watching these different scenes. And I like, again, I think of it as a kind of pixelated narrative where like any little pixel is just a little bit of light on its own. But you put it in a pattern, and it illuminates something much bigger. And that was the the real challenge with this piece, mm-hmm. was a nonlinear narrative that can build to something really universal at the end. 
The opera is sort of encapped with these like scenes from 1965 where he's he's like in his garage, right? Like there's a workbench. The garage of the mind. I mean, the garage of the mind. I think there, right now somebody listening to this may be in, in a garage in Seattle or elsewhere working on the next big thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's one of the the sacred spaces, mythological spaces of the tech universe, the garage. I mean, Hewlett-Packard had one. Mm-hmm. Larry Page, I think, had one. Um, certainly Steve Jobs. I mean, so many tech superstars started working in the garage. And Mark Campbell, the librettist, I'm really grafted on to this space. It's mm-hmm. a psychological space as it is just a little 400-square-foot garage in Cupertino. What was really meaningful was that he read that Steve Jobs' father would work in his garage on mechanical engineering and that kind of thing. And that's kind of how he brought his son into this love for how things work. So the opening of the opera is him giving his son a workbench. And that space is kind of shattered as the the set is so beautiful. It, It kind of, the walls go fly apart and build other things. But we return to that by the opera's end. And that the garage is kind of mentioned especially with Waz, it's like, you know, remember the garage, you know, as, as, as you become this Goliath. Think back to when we were in that space. Whether you're a tech person or like me, for me, the garage is a studio. We all have our kind of sacred spaces. And so uh, we wanted that to be a kind of metaphor throughout the piece. Well, Mason Bates, I want to thank you for coming in here to talk to me. I'm sure you have a very busy schedule. I appreciate you taking the time. And people who are in Seattle, go and see the opera. Thank you. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more episodes, including episodes about opera, go to classicalclassroomshow.com. Follow us on all of the social media links that you will find there, or just send us an email at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Thanks today to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM in Seattle, where the acoustics are great for shower singing. Thanks to our birthplace, Houston Public Media. Thanks to Mason Bates for being on the show. A very special thanks to Jonathan Dean and our friends at the Seattle Opera. Their podcast is awesome, and I highly recommend that you listen to it. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.